Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, which is now part of Intelligent Investor, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. G'day, James. Hello, Alan. Good to be back. Yes. Um, Lots happened since I uh, Yeah, so look, uh, let's just talk about supermarkets because it's been, yeah. you know, there's been a bit of action on that front. Sure has. Oof. Uh, the last couple of weeks mm. with Woolies and Coles. Yes. Uh, I don't think I've t- – I spoken to you about Woolies? No. No, you spoke to uh, um, Stephen last week and I so did wh- listen to that. So what did you think of Brad Banducci's uh, p- uh, particular issues? Well, I think Brad uh, performed very poorly on Four Corners. Uh, pretty out of character for Brad too. He's a pretty thoughtful guy, I've always found him. Um, and a, he has been a really good CEO of Woolworths. I know people will disagree with that. But he has been a cracking boss of Woolworths. Absolutely changed that company, fixed it up, stabilised it at the start, and then has gone into a bunch of different things, including advertising and media, uh, food services, so, you know, business-to-business food provision, and all these other revenue streams that Woolworths has now got cooking. So I thought his end was sort of sad. I bet Brad wishes he'd gone a year earlier. But, look... I'm struggling with this supermarket thing. I know Stephen was quite hot last week on the podcast about, you know, these guys had got too much power, got too much market power. They've certainly got a lot of market power. But I struggle with this idea of price gouging. Like, what is it? How do we define it? Um, Woolies and Coles are making about three cents in the dollar at the net profit line. Six cents in the dollar or so, five cents in the dollar or so at the in their supermarkets business. Is that unreasonable is it reasonable i've really I, I don't know i think it's really hard to answer and so uh, when, when you from there it, it is interesting i mean i think everyone wants needs to have someone to blame yeah um, totally. uh for what's going on my well, i mean my view is the main problem for cost of living is housing yeah um yeah uh, that's really kind of the fundamental thing but uh, housing is like this kind of uh, yeah, well, everyone obviously complains about that, but um, I, I went through the ABS data on um, uh, the CPI, the monthly CPI yeah. came out yesterday, yeah. and I, I looked at uh, percentage change in each category. Year on year? Year on year, but also over the past three years. Okay. And there are some categories that have seen big increases over the past three years. So, for example, um, meat uh, meat and seafoods, 23% over three years. Yeah. So that's a lot. It's a lot, really. for sure. In three years, yep. that's a lot. Um, uh, fruit and vegetables, 24%. Yep. Um, uh, what else? Non-alcoholic beverages, you know, soft drinks and that, I guess, 22%. Alcohol and tobacco, 20%. Um, they're, they're big so numbers. But bread and cereal, 16%. So look, you know, so, so there has been a big increase in price over three years. Yeah, but... but- But break that down. I mean, what's happened in the last three years? More frequent natural disasters. There's all your. There's there's part of the increase in in uh, livestock and 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 fruit and vegetable prices. Uh, Much higher energy prices, in 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 part related to the same thing. Uh, Solid wage growth, particularly in the last twelve months. So, like those things don't come for free. No, no, I'm not. uh, Yeah, sure. No, I'm just saying that the people. Are seeing these prices oh, totally. go up, right? Yeah. And they're, they're going, well, what the hell's going on? 
Uh, and they and go, no one goes back and says, oh, how have the inputs to those uh, no, of course. industries gone? That's right. And, it's, I mean, and it, is interest, it is interesting that despite with all of this, what's happened is that they've preserved – the supermarkets have kept their margins. Yeah, yeah. You know, like if you look at the Coles and Woolies margins, whatever it is, three cents in the dollar, yeah. it hasn't changed. No, it hasn't. Over, over four or five years. Yeah, it hasn't well, gone up though. Hasn't gone up. Yeah. That's right. And the other interesting thing I find is that in order to preserve those margins, they have to screw the suppliers. Yes, yes. I mean, they are absolutely hammering their, their, the farmers because, and, and as the NFF is rightly complaining about, they're, they're hammering the food suppliers. So, so something else is going on, right? So as you say, the other inputs are all going up in price yeah. a lot. Yeah. So to preserve their margins, they screw the farmers. Yes. Um, and put the prices up of the of the food by you know twenty percent in three years. Yeah. But as you say, but they're the, not the, making any more money. They're not making any more money. So, so the, the which leads me is is the answer here that we should all be paying more for groceries and more of that should be passed on to the farmers. I mean. I think that's what some of this price gouging inquiries will find. The farmers are getting a, 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 a have had their mm. have been screwed, or, or or that's the view. I'll, I'll come back to that in a sec. But that that's is that the question? Are we are we actually paying too little for our groceries if we want to give more money to the farmers, or should Woolworths and Coles make less money? I don't know. This is the thing I really struggle with. Well, I don't think you're going to be popular saying we're paying not, we aren't paying enough for our of groceries. Of course not. I mean, you know, you know really. we all go to the supermarket and find, you know, f- fifty bucks doesn't buy almost nearly as much stuff as it used to, and so I don't, I don't agree with that. But I don't, you know, support the idea of paying more for groceries. But if you want more to go to the farmers and you want Coles and Woolworths to maintain their service levels and the size of their network and not shut any, not shut down any stores and make sure the, the shelves are full and availability is good, what's the answer? So just, just to finish off on the supermarkets, do, do you think that um, uh, Leah Weckett will uh, be able to bring Coles back and challenge... Woolworths now that Woolworths is in a bit of strife and it's in, in transition, and, and and will she will she actually? Oh, I mean, pull something off there. Coles shares have underperformed Woolworths, but yeah, they the, have the the performance of the business hasn't been that far below. But we did see very interestingly the first eight weeks of this calendar year, Wool uh, Coles' sales were up around 5%, I think. Woolworth sales were up only 1.5%. So is this being felt, all this acrimony, being felt at Woolworths more than it's being felt at Coles? There's a few other things going on. Coles is running some promotions that Woolworths isn't. But this is a bit of a moment for Leah Weckett to say, my competitor's (laughs) feeling the pain slightly more than me and I should make hay from that. Yeah. So... Be interesting to see. So, how, how did you? Th- how do you think she performed last week? On four corners, or no, no, no. Just well in the in the, in the results. Oh, I think profit. she. I think she did the a results. great job, and, and and she made all the arguments that I'm pretty sure she did make to four corners, but didn't make it to air. Uh, we make we make three less than three cents on the dollar, two point six cents on the dollar. From that, we've got a and and you know part of that is we pay 120,000 workers, 8,000 suppliers. We pay heaps of tax. Profit's not a bad thing, you know. What, what, what sort of what do you want me to do? Yeah, and, and I, I think it's really hard to answer. What is the right amount of profit for the supermarkets? 
It's not zero. Is it 2.6 cents on the dollar? It sounds pretty crappy to me. You, know, you can make five cents on the dollar from holding a government bond. Yeah. <laughs> what? I don't, know. I don't know the answer, but I think we come at this very unscientifically. And, you know, you see Bob Catter and Andrew Wilkie dressed as pigs in Parliament House. Yeah, that I was mean, fun. I mean, I mean really. It, 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 like, what this reminds me of, a few years ago it was really fashionable to smash the banks. And I think this is just the next thing. Politicians can say it's not us, it's someone else. Yeah. So, standard, isn't it? Um, just moving on, you had an interesting piece about Guzmini Gomez and... Uh, there was there was also a news article on it. Yeah. They and the news piece talked about the fact they're losing money. Yeah, they are a little bit of money. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. Th- they've got tons of stores or 180 stores or something in Australia. Yep. Um, and uh, sales are going up. Yes. Uh, but yep. they're still losing money. So why are they losing money? Well, they're investing in the business. So there's some. I, I guess you would call them. You know, one off the one off costs they've got to make oh, I to see. build the business. At, at the net profit line are weighing on, uh, are pushing them into loss. At a sort of underlying line, so stripping that sort of stuff out, they're, they're, they're profitable. Not massively profitable, but I think they made, b- profit before tax was like $14 million on $375 million of sales in the I should, December I should, half. I should say I'm a big fan of their burrito bowls. Right. right. Uh, have you eaten their food? I have eaten there, yeah. Yeah, it's nice. It's great. Yeah, um, and I think that the the staff are terrific. The whole setup, the system is good. Yeah, everything about them is good. But but you said that they're going to have a thousand stores, or they're aiming at a thousand stores. That's ridiculous in Australia. Yeah, that'd be that's that'd be like thirty percent more than KFC's got. Yes, uh, and almost as many as McDonald's has yeah. got. So that's not going to happen, surely. Well, look, well, that's I just mean, rubbish. That's their medium term goal. And they do need to keep growing. They are targeting a share market float. They want to float this thing. They've been trying to float it or thinking about floating it for two years. The view is that they think, you know, the round ball figure that the market talks about is that this thing's worth $2 billion and they'll need heaps of growth. I don't know that the market's talking about that. They they might be talking about that. Yeah, they might be talking about that. That's true. Uh, Is this because Stephen Marks, the founder, wants to get out? He wants an exit? Uh, I don't think it's so much Stephen Marks, but he's got uh, a private equity firm. TDM is in there. All oh, right, and how long uh, have they been in there? Oh, more than five years. Yeah, right. So they yeah. want it. They, they want. Yeah, they, they want an exit. You know, they're they're not there forever. No. Um, I think they'll they'll hold their stock after the float. I mean, I'm not sure they're running away, but yeah, a, a float allows people the opportunity to get out when they want to get out. So uh, it's going to be a fascinating thing. The, Floats have generally been the float window, as they call it in the market, has generally been closed. It's been really hard to float anything of size. Why is that? I think uh, partly it's because higher interest rates. So, do you want to higher interest rates mean more risk? Do you want to take a risk on an unproven ASX company, a new ASX company, or do you want to stick with what you know if you're a fund manager? And the other thing is, I think fund managers are generally wary of floats. They get dressed up and talked up in the media and they can be overvalued. Um, there's been a lot of private equity floats that have been overvalued and, and later gone poorly. So fund managers are wary and investors are, are wary of these floats. So you need a really good story and good uh, sentiment to break through that. And I'm not sure we're quite there yet. Yeah. Even though... 
market. What happened to them in the US? Just uh, we shouldn't talk about them too long. But what 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 they got sued in the US? Yeah, right? they, there was a legal case, quite a a nasty legal case, which they've settled. Uh, they had some. Um, I think they brought on some consultants and and advisors over there, and it all went to. Uh, crap, and um, there were legal cases flying. They were settled for relatively small amounts, but it was all pretty embarrassing. It was well covered by Primrose Reardon and the AFR. Um, and now they've really wound back their ambitions there. So there was talk that they'd, you know, storm the US. They've got four stores all in Chicago. They're going to go to eight stores. They'll stay in Chicago and test the model. So I think Australia is the big growth engine. Right. A Guzman, uh, a, a GYG on every corner to get to a thousand stores. They'll well, be have everywhere. To. That's right. They'll be everywhere. <laughs> well, I mean, that was the question I asked. Can you get enough property? Yeah. And they they reckon they've got 10 real estate people hunting properties. There's heaps of good sites. So, yeah. Um, uh, what else do you want to talk about briefly? Well, G- gender pay written, gap? You've got- you, you, you've, yeah, we can talk about the gender no, no, pay gap. Going, you, you I was going to say? say, you've written a column today about. Uh, suggesting that nuclear energy is the bee's knees, which is no, like, I did not oh, say that. I didn't say oh, that's that. That's what the headline said. The headline <laughs> says says the ban on nuclear energy is ridiculous. Oh right, okay. Uh, the ban was introduced in 1998. Yes, by John Howard in a deal with the Greens because John Howard wanted to get up a, a, the research reactor at Lucas Heights. Right. Yep. So he he introduced this this idea, a bill, in fact, to to have a Research reactor at Lucas Heights. Uh, everyone opposed it. Greens and Labor Party opposed it. Greens said they they prepared to do a deal. Uh, we'll approve it if you ban actual nuclear power yes. in Australia. And yes. Howard, for some reason, agreed. Um, so uh, here we are. We've got a ban on nuclear power in Australia, which I think is crazy. And you know, uh, but not because you think we should have a reactor on every corner next to our GYG. Well, I think that. Um, I think that there, it isn't it isn't economic, right? No one's going to build it here, so there's no danger of the the lifting of the ban actually resulting in nuclear power happening yes. in Australia. The problem, the a uh, couple of problems. One is that the, it's really the, the the introduction of nuclear power is the only policy on energy that the coalition's got. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, right. And so for that reason alone it's worth ditching the ban so they've got no policy anymore and they have to think of something actually <laughs> sensible yes. to do uh, in the energy transition as opposed to simply saying let's have nuclear power yep. um, because you know if there's no ban then it's up to and, and anyway it should be a business decision you know the question of whether someone builds a, uh, a nuclear power plant in Australia should simply be a, an investment decision is it a good idea or not just like a GYG store just like a GYG store. Uh, the other thing is that the the coalition's plan for renewables in Australia, sorry, not the, the Labor Party's plan for renewables is eighty two percent renewables, yep. which leaves eighteen percent for something else. Uh, we'll probably overshoot eighty two percent the way things are going with rooftop solar, mm-hmm. so maybe ninety percent yep. renewables still leaves ten percent, and I don't think the ten percent should be fossil fuels. You know, right. I mean, we can't. Prob- we probably can't have one hundred percent renewables. There's got to be something else, right? And that nu- and nuclear could be the something else in well, some form. There's, there's a lot of talk about uh, small modular reactors, yes, yes. which would be about three hundred megawatts. So you know, relatively small. They're apparently the size of a 
shipping container. Yeah. They don't actually but exist, though, at the moment. They don't they? exist. Yeah. Uh, so there's some the, testing. And the only American company that was developing it has given up. Yeah. <laughs> so, look. Other than that, it's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, look, in theory, they work. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe in 10 years' time they'll work. But, I, I, again, I think that the question of – so this is, this is what Peter Dutton's talking about all the time. Yeah, small totally. nuclear, Small modular reactors. Yeah. He reckons, you know, we've got to have these things. Well, just remove the ban – and it becomes a business decision. Yeah. Either these things are, are, are viable or not. Yeah. Um, yep. So anyway, that's my view. It was an inter- I mean, it's interesting you wrote that. There was a, uh, Andrew Forrest gave an interesting speech at the press club on Monday. And I think he's, he's, he can see the momentum for the energy transition slipping. And he, it was basically a sort of call to fire everyone up. And particularly he was responding to the nationals who have said, you know, we don't want big renew- large-scale renewable projects in the bush, in inverted commas. Let's just do ro- rooftop solar batteries and nuclear. And Forrest is like, why would we do that? Let's just explain to people in the bush that these renewable projects will create jobs and money and reduce their power bills and turn Australia into a his, – his idea is a clean energy superpower. I mean, it is just – it is an interesting fact that um, the, the energy transition does require – does mean taking up a lot more land yeah. for energy generation, right? So the, the old coal-fired power stations in the Latrobe Valley and the Hunter Valley, they're all quite small, right? Relatively speaking, yes. they're you yes. know they're they're contained. They're a factory sitting there on the land. But it, when you replace that that factory with solar and wind, you take up yeah. ten times the amount of uh, the amount of land. But I think Forrest's number was it, it's still only one percent of the Australian landmass. So oh yeah, that's right. But it's still let, let's, let's it's, chill it's out. still quite <laughs> noticeable. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, and look. There, he's got a private company called Squadron that has, I think, 14 big wind projects on the go. And so he's going out and talking to farmers and convincing them. And, you know, how's he convincing them? He's saying, they're saying, well, what else do we get for this? He's saying, well, you, for a start, you get a wind farm that's not going to fail like a crop. And then you get, we'll, we'll do high-speed broadband. We'll do housing. We'll put money into the community. We'll have a fund to decommission the... Does the but, but does the... Uh, power generation on the land yield as much per acre as a crop Not or sure, livestock? Not sure, but it doesn't prevent you doing the crops as well. Um, right. You know. Uh, but look, you y- understand, you know, farmers have lived a certain way and operated a certain way and it is a big impost. But um, yeah, I-, I think Forrest's right. You can see this, you know, there's a, there's a bit of wedge politics going on here hmm. um, that it's probably not... Help, helpful towards our energy transition goals. Let's move to questions. Before we do that, a quick word from our sponsor. Is it time to brush up on your investing skills and knowledge? Well, InvestSmart's Investor Bootcamp is for you. Learn the fundamentals of investing, how to form better money habits, and what it takes to build long-term wealth. Do it at your own pace over three months with the option to participate in live weekly webinars to consolidate your learning. Usually $99, Money Cafe listeners can get $40 off with the code MONEY40. Visit investsmart.com.au forward slash bootcamp and use MONEY40 to save $40. Now, uh, before we go on to the main questions, <laughs> here's a main answer. Uh, we've got three pages of questions or, or comments. 
in response to uh, Stephen Main's statement last week about capital gains tax and yes. inheritance and his uh, recollection of his father's situation, as he said, which was that um, uh, the assets or the capital gains tax was was uh, what would you say was re restarted on his father's Reset. death, yeah. reset on yep. his father's death, yep. the the, the uh, cost base, yes, uh, and that's what he said he understood what was the situation. Um, so look, it was a personal kind of reflection, but anyway, all these people have been. Yeah, should, should we read perhaps first an answer from Sarah, the accountant, who's explained how it does work? Yeah. She says, love the show. Just had to correct Stephen's correction of James from last week. Stephen said, when someone dies and you inherit the, uh, inherit shares, then the cost base of the shares is the market value on the date of their death. The rule is, if you inherit shares for capital gains purposes, the cost base is the deceased owner's cost base unless the shares are pre-CGT, September 1985, then you use the market value on the date of death. So they are both right, depending on the circumstance. Beautiful. And then we have lots of answers summarising that. So Stephen wasn't completely wrong. No, but look, and I think, and maybe maybe his father's shares were pre-1985. Exactly. exactly. Um, so Stephen wrote a mea culpa, which we don't need to read out probably. No. But he did. It, it is rather funny. He does. Uh, re- you should read the top line at least. <laughs> Twenty years ago, former uh, former editor of the Truth newspaper Tim Blair um, called me Australia's largest supplier of internet inaccuracies in his column on the now defunct Bulletin magazine. And then he went on to say, "Sadly, there was another one at last week's Money Cafe, but we've just explained what happened, and exactly. he's fine. <laughs> yeah, he's eating humble pie, but he he shouldn't feel too bad. No." Hey, um, Alan, can I ask the first question? Because I think it's uh, going to be one for you. All right. Phil says, the housing shortage is getting worse. It's a simple supply and demand problem. Either increase supply or decrease demand. I do not understand why there is no discussion about stopping the sale of housing stock to foreign investors. No one ever talks about this. Our price increases must be significantly impacted by wealthy foreign investors buying up Australia's limited housing stock. Yeah, well, it's simply not true. Right. I mean... It's uh, look. I think a lot of issues. A lot of this is this issue brings out a lot of xenophobia in people, and I think that um, the idea that it's all because of foreign investors is simply wrong. Um, uh, there isn't much of it. It isn't driving house prices up. They're not. You know, they just they just kind of contr- it's controlled. Yeah. Okay. And it's on the margins in terms of the yeah, impact on price. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, Nick says. When assessing a company's future growth potential, how much emphasis should be placed on the user experience? For example, I've had multiple painful experiences with computer share logging in as well as trying to assist my partner, and he goes on about how terrible computer share experience has been. Is this a reason for not buying the stock? <laughs> well, it's a great question, I think. I think so too. The, the, the sort of real life, the, the lived experience with products is can be a reason for not oh, buying absolutely. stock. Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, that's a really good reason for buying a stock if you like the company and yep. uh, and it works. Like, uh, for example, I love Adairs, the store. Right. It's a fantastic store. Okay. It's just the way they tr- deal with their customers, the loyalty there discounts they have and the, the store itself is great. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I didn't discover this for myself. My wife is, uh, is a big fan of Adairs. Okay. Um, but that's a good reason for buying the stock, I reckon. Yeah, you don't want to put all your eggs in the anecdotal basket. No, no, true, of um, course. And 
the the one uh, the one I guess caveat, Nick, is that if where a company has market dominance like Computer Share does, your bad experience can sort of um, be you know not matter as much. You don't have too much choice other than to cop computer shares bad experience or what you see as computer shares bad experience so there are some forces that you need to take into account like how big a player is this guy is this company in the market that can override those concerns Andrew says, with this ANZ Suncorp merger, what will be the benefit for Suncorp shareholders? There doesn't seem to be much info for the shareholders. What happens as ANZ gets the bank side of Suncorp? Do Suncorp shareholders get the insurance side of the company? Is the share split and we are left with part of the deal, part of Suncorp and some ANZ shares? With the share, will the shareholders get a vote on the deal? The shareholders seem to be left behind in regards to this deal. Well... Yes, Suncorp shareholders get left with the insurance business. Yes. That's what you get left with. And ANZ's paying cash for it, aren't they? Yes, that's right. So yeah. there should be a giant capital return coming your way. So, yeah. So, Andrew, what you're going to get is some cash and uh, you're going to own an insurance business. Yep. And what you're not going to get is any shares in ANZ and you're not going to get a vote on this deal. It's um, no. n- not a deal that requires a vote because it's only part of the business. Uh, and I would say, just as a personal, as an observation, I reckon you're better off without the Suncorp back. Absolutely. Bank. I mean, fair Absolutely. Income, these, this, this, these middle banks are going nowhere. The, this is the unquestioned winner out of this deal is Suncorp. Yeah. Because insurance is becoming a really difficult, complex business. It's even harder when you've got to run a sort of middling bank. And so Suncorp gets rid of its middling bank and gets to concentrate on being an insurer. That's a big win. Yep. Rosemary says, I enjoyed reading your quarterly essay about real estate, but you might have missed something. It is almost impossible to buy or sell real estate buy or sell without a real estate agent's involvement. They are untrustworthy, self-regulated, and cost the vendor a lot in advertising and commission. Imagine a stockbroker carrying on this way now. They can do and say anything and get away with it. I could write a book about my unfortunate experiences. And she has a YouTube link. Uh, and says, these chaps say it better than I could. Their comments are telling. Did you watch the YouTube? No, I didn't, but I think it's about underquoting. Um, well, no, the well, the YouTube, <laughs> the YouTube link uh, is basically using the C-bomb. C-bomb, right. Okay. And that they're all... <laughs> oh, they're all C-bombs. They're right. all C dot dot dots. Right. That's, what the whole, Rose- that's what the whole YouTube <laughs> is about. Rosemary's. Rosemary's getting a bit fruity. <laughs> Very I'm glad I didn't watch it, Alan. That would have affected no, my sensitive ears. Your cheeks would have burned. All right, tell me, Alan. Uh, again, is, is underquoting um, scurrilous real estate agents, is this a marginal issue or a major one? Uh, oh, it's an issue. Um, they d- definitely underquote. You have to you know, add whatever it is to the price that you get quoted. I mean, you know, there's that, and that's not going to be stamped out. It's, I, mean, I, I think the issue is commission. The commissions. In what way? Too high? Yeah. Right. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we've been talking about house prices going up, right? Yes. And they've all got, and house prices have gone up a lot. Uh, they keep rising at, you know, double inflation, have been for 20 years. Uh, for that whole 20 years, uh, uh, real estate agents' commissions have stayed the same. Yeah. So they're getting the same percentage. Of, of <laughs> a much bigger pie. A much bigger pie. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, at the same time, over that period, they've shifted the cost of the advertising to the vendor. So not only do you pay real estate commission now, 
you pay directly yeah. for the advertising yeah. costs, yeah. right? I mean, when I, when we sold a house, first house, year, you know, decades ago, yes, the advertising costs were included in the commission. Right. The agent paid them. Yeah. Now we pay them, right? Is that just a transparency thing, though? No, no, the commission is the same. Oh, no. So they've kept the commission the same and they've just shifted a whole lot of costs off from them onto the vendor. Yeah. Uh, And at the same time, the the typical campaign has shrunk from two months to one month. Yeah, yeah. So it's quicker. (laughs) The commission's the same. And and look, I mean, I I went on to a... um, uh, I, I went into a website the other day called Find My Agent because I was interested in com- comparing commissions and I was hoping that this website would tell me what the commissions uh, of various agents were so you could actually tell. But it's incredibly untransparent. There's no, mm. you know, you can't find out until you talk to an agent and actually ask them directly what the commission is, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the answer is the, the average commission is about 1.5%. Yeah, but... I- it, it feels like a relatively mar- – it's an issue at the margins again. It would be good to clean it up, but it's not why house prices are surging. No, but- no, I'm not saying it is. It's, I'm just saying that this – Rosemary's complaining about agents and I think there's much to complain course. about. It. Yeah. It's fair enough. It's true. Yeah, fair um, enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I'm, not gonna, I'm still not going to click on that link, Rosemary. It sounds very rude. Oh, it's rude. <laughs> it's very rude, but it's, it's kind of amusing. <laughs> <laughs> Your turn. Oh, Tim says, thank you for the great podcast. What happens to my holding of a company within an ETF if the company gets bought out and subsequently delisted? For example, borrow in the GRNV Van Eck ETF. If the stock is bought out at a premium, is this somehow reflected in the ETF? Uh, uh, absolutely. The, the ETFs all do what's called rebalancing. So if a stock gets taken out, something they bring something else in to replace it. Um, and also, uh, it often happens not just because the company gets taken over, but because the company gets smaller. Yeah. The share price falls, it drops out of the index, it's got to drop out of the ETF, so they have to rebalance. Can I just raise, though, Alan, the GRNV Vanek uh, ETF is an Australian Sustainable Equity ETF. Oh, right. How would you find Borrell in the Sustainable Equity ETF? Pretty big emitter, working very hard to get those emissions down, but... How do you reckon they qualify? Good question. <laughs> that's that's a that's a pretty that's, that's, a, the, that's the bigger question. It's a bit of a stretched definition oh, of sustainable, isn't yeah. it? Jesus. True to labels, Australian Sustainable Equity ETF. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tim says I've got a forty percent allocation to Australian shares in the form of STW, which is a ASX two hundred ETF. If listed companies are taken over, move offshore. Uh, with an adequate renewal through good IPOs, is there a risk that in future STW will be made up of four banks, two miners, and 194 <laughs> penny stocks? Uh, that's interesting. That's a, it's a really good question. Well, I, sure, but you know, yeah, yeah. go on. You, I mean, I'll be, if, if you look at who's drive, who's driven this market in the last, oh, you know, since the November rally started, it is basically very, very large companies. It's um, the four banks. Uh, Fortescue, Rio, CSL, which has bounced back from a pretty um, tough year last year, Goodman Group, uh, Cochlear, 
So it's not quite four, four banks and two miners, but it's a fairly narrow group of companies. But that's always been the case in Australia. It's even narrower in the US. Yeah. It's, you know, like 30% of the market is seven tech stocks. Yeah, well, 30% of the market here is about six stocks or seven <laughs> stocks true. as well. So, yeah. But it's 30%, I guess, at least in the US, it's 30% of 500 rather than 30% of 200. But I think... I don't. I think you're, Tim's absolutely right, um, but I don't quite know what his answer is, except that he doesn't have to have forty percent allocated to Australia. That's the beauty of, you know, of the trade of the options available to you now. You can diversify a lot further. Yeah, that's wish. right. And you don't have to just even if you wanted to just be in Australia, you don't have to just go for ASX yeah. two hundred. There's plenty of uh, there's plenty of niche ETFs that you can. Yeah, I would say, and there's a few strategists talking about this, it does seem to be an economy and a market where the money is flowing to the big, relatively monopolistic players because people see them as having A, quality earnings and B, an ability to, to, you know, make things happen in their market, to to withstand margin compression, to continue to, to hold the line on prices. So it does feel like an economy and a market where the big get bigger. So maybe it's not a bad thing, Tim. Uh, I don't know. Very uh, interesting. Oh, is it, is it my turn? It's my turn, yeah. Go, go ahead. Oh, I think this is, this Richard's question is really interesting. Okay, I'll read but it. But you probably, probably don't need to read the whole thing. Right. So Richard um, purchased a second property during COVID on the Sunshine Coast where he intends to live when he retires with his um, partner. We have a short-term letting. We have been short-term letting, so we can use it ourselves when we want to. Recently, we got a letter from the council stating that due to an integrity check, quote-unquote, they had decided to double our rates as we were short-term letting the property and they need to address the housing shortage. Um, I think this is amazing. Yeah, and he's basically saying... Uh, I understood the role of a collection was to deliver services. Arguably, we are using less services than if we lived in the property ourselves or had a long-term tenant. Ironically, we now claim a bigger amount for negative gearing and pay less tax than we otherwise would, meaning there are less tax dollars for the departments that actually do provide housing. Why are these councils allowed to get away with such shameless gouging? Well, there's a few councils that are doing this. Gold Coast is doing it too, right. and Brisbane Council, and Melbourne Council is looking at doing it. I'm, and I, and I, that's as far as I've got with the with the research. A lot of councils are, uh, are hopping into this, saying we need to get uh, houses out of or uh, apartments out of short term rental into long term rental because yep. of the rental sh- shortage, and they're taking it upon themselves to whack up the rates on yeah. the short-term rentals. It's an uh, Airbnb tax, as it's sometimes called. That's right. Which, um, uh, why is it the council's job? I mean, crikey. Well, I guess they're getting... They like, can piss off. No, 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 no. If you're... If you're uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an outrage. You do? Well, it's not their bloody business. I mean, you know, they've got to... Well, they have to deal with the homelessness in those major areas. Oh. They have to provide the services, the, the the social worker services to look after that. I mean, it's it's not a costless. Oh, I uh, think problem, I think they're it? doing it as pure gouge. Really, I do. That's, okay, I reckon. Well, I mean, I can see your point. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't look, expect I, that reaction from you. I, 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 I do think that there is a problem with uh, too many houses going to Airbnb. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, what's um, the solution? I suppose the answer is the tax. But <laughs> I, I think it should be. I think it should be uniform. 
you know, right. you have councils doing it. It's all over the place. Yeah. You know, some, some poor bastard who's got a uh, property in Sunshine Coast gets whacked with double rates and somebody up the road doesn't, you yes. know. Although... It uh, should, be, it should by, be national. By definition, uh, Richard with two properties is not a quote-unquote poor bastard. He's a rich bastard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I don't mean that, Richard, but you know what I mean. He no, is, I don't think he's rich. He's, he, uh, he's, I mean... Multiple properties. First world problem, you reckon? Well, <laughs> first and a half, isn't it? I mean, this is this is this is the issue. Like, how many? But by the same token, we do need investors to own properties to turn them into rentals. So there's a balance to be sought here. Yeah, I mean, the the basic problem is that the the premium available rental premium you get from Airbnb is too big. Yeah, and Richard wants you to know. use it himself, which is fair enough. Yeah, he does. That's right. Yeah. So it's a tough one. Yeah, but I understand Richard would be upset. Gav says, I understand, as I understand it, property insurance is a big pool of money that everyone pays into. If someone something goes wrong, such as a flood, fire, etc., you are allocated funds from the pool to repair or rebuild your home. My question is, what do the insurance companies do with the giant pool of money when it's not being allocated? Are they regulated by the like the big super companies? No, they, it, all the money is kept in the basement car parks of their offices and they swim in it every day. No, that's not true. Uh. They, they invested in the market and in the last, uh, in the December half, they got some juicy investment returns from, uh, they, they put most of it in the safest stuff, so bonds and fixed interest. Some of it's in equities. Uh, there was a little bit of a boost from their investment um, holdings in the last six months. So, and yes, they are regulated, uh, not unlike the giant super companies. They have to have, they have to basically hold a certain amount of capital to make sure they can cover their losses. And and Gav, just so, I mean, just to correct you a little bit, um, your allocated funds from the pool, yes, uh, but only if the uh, the insurance company can't get out of it. <laughs> Gav's actually raised a really interesting question. You know, the foundation of home insurance is that it's pooled, right? But if you look at where insurance pricing is going, it's going to be increasingly personalised. So you in the suburbs of X city, uh, in a a non-flood, in a very safe area in terms of floods and bushfires, will get a different price to someone obviously in a bushfire zone or a flood zone. But in the pooled circumstance, your premiums are higher to pay for those people living in those more risky areas. So there is a balance here that's going to be really interesting. How yeah. far do we go down the personalisation? Well, another way route? to look at that is that is that we uh, are cross-subsidising people who choose to live in flood uh, floodplains. Yep. Um, Absolutely. We is that, totally is that are. okay? Yeah. I mean, is that is okay? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But we're all going to be paying more for insurance because of it. And, you know, you talk to the insurers and what they say is those places, we shouldn't have been allowed to build in those places. Last question from Alan. Alan, please help. I have Magellan Global Funds Options, which is the ASX Cody's MGFO, in my online broker. What are they exactly and what would you do if you had them in your portfolio? Question two from Alan is, did or does Alan Kohler have a nickname or nicknames? What, do you want to answer that first? No, obviously. I'm dying to find out. Well, obviously my nickname at school was yes. Coke. Coke? That's good. Coca-Cola. Oh, and yeah. then it moved to Pepsi. Right. And then for a while there, there was a, there was a brand called Royal Crown Cola. <laughs> right. Do you remember Royal Crown Cola? Or RC, yep. yeah. RC. No, I do, so yeah. I was called RC. Right. There you go. 
And more recently, is there anyone who? What 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 do the grandkids call you? Bubba, Bubba, Bubba. Okay, there you go. <laughs> and that was that was Alfie's my first grandchild's uh, invention. He just started calling me Bubba. Yep. And everyone went, okay, that'll do. That'll do. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and all the grandkids now call me Bubba. Okay. Well, uh, there you go, Alan. Now you've been looking into. I have. I have done a little. But can bit I? Of can I just ask before we move on to what exactly is going on? How come, Alan? Doesn't know what they are if he's got them if he owns them. I'm not sure. <laughs> this is the I've been puzzling over um, this of how you've ended up with these MGFO Magellan Global Fund options, Alan. But I'll, I'm going to put that to one side. <laughs> this is actually a fascinating little story. Um, Magellan set up this structure. A, a, a lot of licks did it where you could buy an option. List, a lick is an, list, a listed investment company. Thank you, Alan. Where, where you could buy a option in a in the underlying lick shares. Um, they would convert at a cheaper price. So it was a way of sort of generating more interest. Um, the problem with Magellan is that the underlying shares fell quite uh, hard and so the options were out of the money. You, you couldn't convert them. For, they were worth nothing. They were worth nothing or they traded at one cent. A very canny investor called Nicholas Bolton started buying these options and started pressuring Magellan to buy them out and he was successful. So last December, Magellan said they would buy 650 million of these options, not for one cent, but for 10 cents. That's been 65 million bucks to buy the options out and basically make Nicholas Bolton. Do you know how many Nick Bolton bought? Uh, He made about 20 million was the estimate of what he would get. Why didn't we do that? I'm not sure. I mean, (laughs) not sure. I could have bought all those options at one cent. What's the matter with me? So, but anyway, so but but the 650 million options, all of them. Is that the lot? I think it's most of them. So. Alan, is, is Alan going to get bought out? Well, he might get... I don't know how many options he's got, and Alan doesn't even know how he got these options, so you might get a, a dollar in your... <laughs> you who might knows? get a few bucks in your portfolio. But also, who knows what he paid for them, too? Oh, yes, I'm not I sure. Mean, but anyway, um, these these uh, options are going to be mopped up over the next little while. There you it's go. Not com- it's not, the process is not completed because they've just issued their interim accounts, um, but I imagine it'll be completed over the next six months. I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, but Alan, you might be about to get your options bought out, and there might be a few bucks in your portfolio rather than these MGFO uh, stocks. There you are, Alan. Well, that's a very interesting uh, answer. Thanks for listening to today's Money Cafe, everyone. It's been great as always. Um, I'll be back next week with Stephen Main. Questions should be sent to the Money Cafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report and Intelligent Investor, etc. And I'm James Thompson, Senior Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review. 